Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Join us for our 19th annual conference, Disunion in Civil War America, Parallels for Today. This conference examines the American party system, political coalitions, and violent conflict during the 1840s and 50s as an earlier example of deep currents of fear and disorder within U.S political culture and history. Panelists will include historians, political scientists, journalists, and legal scholars as we seek to link past and present in order to address big questions about history for a broad public. Disunion in Civil War America will be held on Friday and Saturday, November 3rd and 4th, 2017 at Loose Hall Auditorium on the Yale University campus. The event is free and open to the public, but registration is required. For more information, visit glc.yale.edu. Today we're talking to Jonathan Schroeder. Jonathan is a postdoctoral associate in digital humanities and English here at Yale University. He received his PhD in English from the University of Chicago and is, his areas of expertise include global American literatures, the history of medicine, and digital humanities. Uh, he's currently at the Digital Humanities Lab and working on two projects. One, uh, working on his uh, dissertation, Prisoners of Loss, an Atlantic History of Nostalgia, uh, working on, on putting that together as a book, and another project called uh, Passages to Freedom, Worlding the American Slave Narrative. Uh, Jonathan, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. And so tell us a little about how you became interested, especially as someone coming from the field of English in, uh, in this topic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so passage, Passages to Freedom is in some ways uh, an offshoot of my uh, working book on nostalgia. Um, So for a long time, specifically from the 17th through 19th centuries, nostalgia actually designated a pathology in medicine. It was actually a form of extreme homesickness suffered by uh, the soldiers and sailors and other people in Europe who were forced to leave home and not allowed to return home due to the conditions of their service. Um, In Prisoners of Loss, what I track is the way in which this European medical concept was exported to the colonies of the Americas and transformed by the institutions it was imported into, specifically uh, into slavery and the military. Um, So in uh, Prisoners of Loss, then, when I'm focusing on slavery, I'm looking at the ways in which the um, framework used to construct nostalgia, which was a framework that linked emotion to mobility, was used to pathologize uh, African-American slaves and slaves of the African diaspora. Um, So what I'm curious about in this study 
of the, is digital humanities study of the slave narrative is the ways in which African-American authors wrote back against the racist conceptions of their own mobility and emotions. So what are some of the examples that these, I guess, medical practitioners uh, were giving of, of, of examples of, of this kind of pathology of nostalgia in uh, enslaved people? Um, that's a great question, actually. Um, and this actually gets at really one of the major ways in which the diagnosis of nostalgia was racialized at the end of the 19th, or end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries. Um, the major difference between European cases of nostalgia, uh, which were usually diagnosed in European white ethnics like Swiss mountaineers and Scottish uh, Highlanders, is that um, African slaves were said to commit suicide from the insanity induced by um, the extreme emotions caused by their separation, usually from uh, the effects of the Middle Passage. And so nostalgia became associated with suicide rather than with a slow kind of wasting illness, which is what it had been defined as in Europe. So, and suicide was a, a fairly prevalent problem among, uh, among recently arrived Africans. Uh, and I assume there uh, obviously was a, a huge kind of uh, sense of loss for being torn from one's homeland that, that obviously contributed to that. And mm -hmm. uh, was this, so um, what makes this a, a digital humanities project? How are you kind of using the tools of digital humanities to, uh, to affect this mm -hmm. project? Um, so one way in which um, Passages differs from Prisoners is that Passages is interested in using the tools and methods of the digital humanities to map the slave narrative, whereas what I do in Prisoners is track the conceptual history of nostalgia. Um, so what that means is um, I'm interested in looking at the entire genre of the North American slave narrative published prior to 1865, which is a corpus that amounts to about 103 texts. And what I'm doing there is actually mapping, uh, I'm extracting all of the place names from those narratives, and I'm doing two things. The first is I'm getting an account of the geography of slavery. What are the kinds of places that appear uh, frequently? What are the, how, would we, how can we map this and visualize this? And then on the other hand, the second thing that I'm doing is I'm reconstructing by hand the individual paths or passages that the authors of these narratives took from slavery to an often precarious and uncertain freedom. So you're uh, using as a resource, uh, I assume, the uh, documents of the American South, the uh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, University of North Carolina mm -hmm. uh, project. Uh, and just and, and are you just laboriously going through uh, the how many? I, I bet you know how many uh, narratives are in that collection. Um, uh, I think it's 294. Okay. Uh, so are you kind of going through and, and, and tagging every... Uh, every example of a, uh, of a place name or what sort of things are you looking for in an individual narrative? So partly I'm laboriously going through by hand and tracking uh, some of the place names and then partly I'm using um, automated techniques 
to extract the entire um, roster of place names that would that occur in this corpus. Um, the reason why I'm going through by hand is because it would be very hard to design an algorithm to uh, accurately associate place names with a particular character in um, in these narratives. Right. And also, oftentimes, what you find is you find um, a lot of synonyms for places uh, like I went to my master's farm, then wow. I re- then I went to town, then I returned back, and through context, you can often figure out what those places refer to. But a computer might have difficulty with that. So, of course, the very nature of uh, a, uh, a a narrative about one's escape from slavery is uh, the necessity of not being too specific uh, as to where one kind of stops along yeah. that route. Uh, how, do, how do you kind of deal with that challenge? Um, I mean, that's actually a really important issue, I think, is to find ways to represent um, non-specificity or vagueness in terms of uh, a place location that's referred to. Um, for example, in William Wells Brown's 1847 autobiography, he might say, I then went to visit my mother in jail, um, then I went to the back of the city. Or he might, also, he might say later on, I was whipped, and then I escaped into the woods six miles from town. And there's a certain inherent vagueness to this, and sure. the question might be how to, how to visualize this, what kind of uh, way, how, what kind of ways can we symbolize this visually? So, uh, and in addition, of course, to creating a, um, uh, uh, a, a map, a roadmap, in, in essence, for each of these uh, narratives, uh, you're also trying to place them in time as well. So is there a way mm-hmm. that you can kind of freeze a moment in, in time and see who is where at a given, at a given moment? I mean, I think this gets gets back at the question about specificity and vagueness. Um, what you find when reading through this corpus is that the vast majority of them occur in chronological order, um, and they often, they, they, all, they rarely have events that occur out of order. Um, but certain narratives are much more specific about uh, time and place than others are. So far, what I found is that Frederick Douglass surprisingly or unsurprisingly, is actually the most specific right down to the level of day and street name. Um, And I think there's also another element that I probably should have added earlier, which is one thing that I'm trying to track here is not simply uh, the question about specificity and vagueness over the course of an entire route from slavery to freedom, but it's also to see if we can characterize the different forms of mobility that may or may not correspond to, say, uh, time spent in slavery, time spent um, escaping, and then time spent uh, after the escape. And what I'd like to see if there are specifiable forms of mobility that correspond to these these different segments of a route. Right, right. And and in fact, uh, you... In some some of doing this, uh, it seems is kind of uh, 
uh, mapping out the very convention of uh, these narratives. Uh, you find mm -hmm. that they have a certain uh, kind of beginning, middle, and end, that there's uh, something to a narrative that, that uh, makes it stand out as a genre? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in part because these narratives were often written to written under the pressure of uh, white abolitionists, um, churches, and other institutions, right. they often take a very conventionalized form. Uh, most famously, pretty much 90% of these narratives begin with the phrase, I was born. Huh. And huh. so I think one thing about following this conventional format is that I'd like to actually show that this representation of movement or mobility um, is, is part of the conventions of the, of the narrative, that if we were to juxtapose, say, Frederick Douglass's mobility over the course of his life against the um, mobilities that he represents in his three autobiographies, right. we'd see that these autobiographies only refer to a very small part of his life. Right, right, right. That that's mm -hmm. that's what the purpose of these narratives, that's what the form of these narratives is, mm -hmm. is escape to freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, now, your uh, uh, subtitle to this project is is worlding the American slave narrative. What do you mean by, by worlding it? Okay. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important thing to emphasize, too. Um, so worlding, I think, gets at two of the sides of this project. One is that worlding often refers to a theoretical framework that refers to um, the phenom phenomenal phenomenology of building a world around you. And this sure. can often be seen as either not representable or not subject to measurement. Um, and this is similarly, this is pretty much how people have often talked about the question of, about fugitivity, which is one of the motivating uh, questions for this this particular study. Uh, fugitivity is often seen as not measurable because it is, by definition, a flight from uh, disciplinary regimes which are trying to enact or exact measurements right. on the slave, um, on or re rendering the slave as, uh, as capital right. or as a capacity. Um, right. And like a routinized sort of mm -hmm. way of living that's completely disrupted mm -hmm. through escape. Mm -hmm. right. And But on the flip side, I think you can only create the conditions for representing fugitivity by showing the kind of empirical conditions of slavery, too. Uh -huh. So that's one sense in which I'm referring to worlding the slave narrative. Uh, the other sense would be to show that rather than being some sort of sacred scripture um, desert for American history, the slave narrative is often a not exactly American genre, that there are many reasons why slaves left the United States or the Caribbean to go elsewhere, oftentimes to Canada or England, but also elsewhere, places like Liberia, um, Australia, and other countries. And by representing the so-called world of the slave right. of the slave narrative, I want to show that these kind of transits occur all over the world. Um, 
for one example, like might be that we don't remember very very often that Olaudo Aquiano goes yeah. to the Arctic. Oh wait, you're right. You're right. We don't remember. <laughs> Nobody that. remembers that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's an interesting map. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, um, and how, I mean, what percentage would you uh, say of the narratives uh, involve kind of um, uh, trans-North uh, uh, American uh, uh, flights? I think it's a, I, I haven't calculated yet, but I think it's a very high percentage. Huh. I would say my guess is over 50%. Uh, I would also think that this number would go up if we were to try to look at this collection of narratives and see if there are any kind of fault lines by which we could divide these narratives into different clusters. Right. Uh, for example, among this one, this group of 103 narratives, you have 10 to 15 kind of death row confessions, which are seen as precursors of the slave narrative, but are not really the same thing. Right. Uh, you also have another group of essentially spiritual narratives, which often don't involve flight or escape, but often involve uh, a slave buying their own freedom, uh, being given their, granted their own freedom through good works, and then entering into the church. And so that seems to be right. a slightly different kind of text than, say, uh, the canonical slave narrative. Right. And I, um, and I guess in some ways uh, the numbers uh, who are fleeing to other parts uh, must be even larger since the very uh, nature of the uh, slave narrative as we see it as a canonical kind of form mm -hmm. involves uh, an abolitionist movement that is kind of actively seeking to, mm -hmm. uh, to record these and use them uh, uh, in the fight against slavery. And if you're somewhere in the world that uh, this is not uh, a, a compelling uh, issue, uh, it's less likely that uh, you're going to create something like this. So I, you know, it seems to me that uh, uh, I'm interested in the balance between the, the, uh, the digital humanities component of your project, which must take an incredible amount of time, uh, both with mapping, but also uh, uh, doing the kind of hard work of going through all these narratives. And what I assume you're ending up with a, with a, a final piece in which all the kind of back work, the kind of, in a sense, creating uh, an archive and, and, mm -hmm. and things that you can use to make your argument, uh, that you're going to be leaving a lot of that behind. Is your finished work, uh, do you see your finished work as like the book or do you see it as the website and the database? I mean, how do you kind of conceive of this project that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, in some ways building a Digital humanities project is a little like looking at a chart of the food pyramid. Right, where, right. There's so much hidden uh, yeah. from the from the very apex. The the published work uh, is usually at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, and yeah, doesn't reveal a lot of the uh, other work that's gone into building this thing. And I think that I am interested in building a resource that is capable of doing. Uh, more things with this corpus than simply uh, spatial spatial analysis. Right. I think that doing textual or stylometric analysis might be really interesting for the purposes of this project. Uh, two future directions that I can imagine going in are to 
follow up on my intuition about the relationship between uh, my nostalgia project and the slave narrative corpus by looking at not simply the different forms of mobility as they're represented in the corpus, but also the, uh, let's say, sentiment words that are used in conjunction with these forms of mobility. Exactly, yeah. And by that, that would allow for a kind of productive comparison of the ways in which um, official forms of knowledge or institutional knowledge represents this relationship and how black authors um, respond to this kind of, their kind of um, interpolation in these systems of knowledge. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the, fa one of the interesting things about a project of this nature is that you're uh, creating uh, this intentional archive, in a mm -hmm. sense, that can be mined uh, in, in various different ways. Is it, mm -hmm. you know, is it, is it uh, there are a number of questions, as you say, that can be put to it. And mm -hmm. so, so with that in mind, uh, and, then, but, and then the other component, of course, uh, maybe a, a second step up on, 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 on the uh, food pyramid is uh, the mapping itself, which uh, uh, again, there, I can imagine that you'll have some illustrations or something, but I don't think in book format you can really adequately uh, convey the richness and, uh, and kind of, you know, just the, the massive data points really that you're assembling mm -hmm. in creating this map. Uh, what do you, do you imagine a place that both this database and this, uh, and, and this mapping that you're creating uh, will reside someplace? Yeah, I think when the site goes live, it will probably have a Yale URL. Um, I'm not sure what the URL will be eventually, uh -huh. uh, but it will definitely, I, I imagine the site on the order of something like the Transatlantic Slave Voyages website, sure. though perhaps not as, not as amazingly comprehensive as that fantastic resource, but something that's aspiring to that kind of resource. And as you've um, been digging into this, have you, uh, have you gone beyond, you said a little about the Caribbean, uh, and beyond that, have you found uh, uh, narratives uh, uh, further afield, like uh, say uh, in, in Brazil or, or elsewhere? So this is actually, I think, one of the things that would be really interesting to do with this resource, which would be to follow up on the frequent mention in histories of the slave narrative that there are something like 6,000 other narratives that were either published in newspapers or were shorter than the separately published uh, narratives that we now, cons we now consider constituting the canon. Right, these monographic works that, uh, that right, as opposed to a, a short newspaper right. article or something. Doing something where we look at the characteristic features of those narratives and compare them against the works that we consider to be canonical, I think would be really, re would reveal a lot of interesting information. In terms of incorporating slave narratives from the Caribbean, that's pretty problematic because there don't seem to be that many. There's no, yeah, that's un true. under 10 that are, that are frequently talked about. Uh -huh. And I don't know about ones from Brazil. I haven't looked at all. Yeah. Okay. So, John, could you recommend for our listeners uh, a few resources uh, for those who are interested in pursuing this subject? Sure. For people interested in mobility, I think two places to go might be 
Thomas Nail's The Figure of the Migrant, and then Kevis Goodman's recent articles on mobility and emotion in 18th century Britain uh-huh. for studies of fugitivity in uh, f- among historians and literary scholars, I would say Britt Russert's Fugitive Science and Daphne Brooks's Bodies in Descent would be really interesting places to start. Well, thanks a lot. I'm really looking forward to both uh, 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 your book on this as well as uh, your your other book on nostalgia, uh, and also on 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 this great kind of resource uh, set that you're creating, the maps, uh, the database, which I think historians in particular are going to find fascinating. And I hope it's a harbinger for uh, many uh, more projects of this nature. So thanks for being here. Uh, It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera, with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.